another look at the apostle John. Here's a man that had preached to multitudes of people. Here's a man uniquely empowered by God, one of the apostolic community. He had healed people. He had been used by God to write John's gospel and the letters of John and the book of Revelation. He was personally given a tour. He saw the stunning glory of the throne of God. He described for us the glories of that golden city. Now, what great things are you doing for God, John? Today on Wisdom for the Heart, we begin a brand new series through the second and third epistles of John. Our Bible teacher, Stephen Davey, has called this series Postcards from John. Even in the salutation of John's second epistle, he offers profound words of encouragement. He's writing this letter to an anonymous woman. He calls her Chosen. His letter's opening reminds this woman that she and her children have not been forgotten, and they are loved by both John and the Lord. As you listen today, you're going to be reminded that whatever your circumstances or challenges, who you are in Christ makes all the difference, and you can stand firm on the promises of God. Stephen's calling this lesson a letter to a lady. Open your Bible to 2 John as we get started. This is a private letter written by the Apostle John to an anonymous woman. In fact, the letter is so private and so personal that the Apostle doesn't even need to name himself or give us her name either. It simply begins, the elder to the chosen lady. That's it. Now, there's little doubt that John the Apostle is the author because of comparison. In fact, eight of these 13 verses are taken almost identically from 1 John and placed in this personal note. These are the same emphases, the same doctrines, the same points. This is John's vocabulary and his style. Now, just to set the stage... John, at this point, is the last surviving apostle. He's one of the 12 original disciples chosen by the Lord and then commissioned later as apostles uh, to lead the early church. By the time John writes this little letter, the term presbyter, presbyteros, translated here elder, has been in use for some 40 years. He's not the only one, the only one serving. He's living out the remainder of his days in Ephesus after having returned from exile on the island of of Patmos. In fact, by the time he writes this letter, he is around 90 years of age. He'll live nearly a decade longer. And he is referring to himself with this pastoral title that he had become known by, uh, a role which which stretched way beyond his involvement in the church at Ephesus, from which he wrote this. But before we we, we dive into the text, let's, let's make sure we don't miss 
the obvious. What amazes me about this opening line are are a couple of things, really. One is that John is still writing to encourage people when he's 90. He, He might not have been, at this point, strong enough to travel those weary years on the island, the the rigor of that lifestyle might have weakened him. We don't know if he is uh, involved in itinerant preaching, if he's even strong enough to stand, but he can still write. (laughs) And so he writes. I I don't think John had any idea that we'd be dissecting and analyzing and expounding on his postcard. I, I think it surprised me that we will we'll spend weeks and, well, months, but not years. Relax. I, I don't think John had any idea of the encouragement and the richness and the reach of this little note that would have its way around the world. But I do want to suggest this, that, that even if it's as even if it didn't go any further than this one woman's house, if that's as far as it went, as far as God was concerned, and as far as John the Apostle was concerned, this one person would have been worth the effort. This one woman made me wonder, what am I missing? Who am I missing? What opportunity am I missing? Take this example from Second John to heart. If you're, beloved, if you're prone to listen to the lie whispered in your heart that you're not all that important in the church or to the church because you don't have a title and you don't have an office and you don't have a podium and you don't have some public role. In fact, all you seem to do well these days is write people little notes of encouragement. And that voice whispers, come on, is that it? Is that all? that's, That's a lie from the serpent that troubles your spirit. Take another look at the apostle John. Here's a man that had preached to multitudes of people. Here, here's a man uniquely empowered by God, one of the apostolic community. He had healed people. He had, he had orchestrated the direction of what we would call the first megachurch on the planet. He had been used by God to write John's gospel and the letters of John and the book of Revelation. He'd been tugged at and pulled at by the masses of people. He, he was personally given a tour. He saw the stunning glory of the throne of God. He described for us the glories of that golden celestial city. Now, what great things are you doing for God, John? I'm just writing a note to a mother who's in need of guidance and encouragement. Beloved, let's never get too big to do something small. Just think about this too. God chose not to preserve for us any sermon outline by John. No manuscript. No tape or CD or MP3. Nothing. But he preserved for us this little note. To an unnamed woman. And it simply begins. The elder to the chosen lady. 
Now, just who was this chosen lady? Who is the recipient of this first century postcard? Now, would you, would you believe, and I'm sure you do, that there are at least six different opinions on who she was? You can't imagine the hours I spent reading 49 authors and experts in the field who weighed the evidence in their own favor regarding one of these six opinions. At one point, I was hoping it would snow today. (laughs) So let's answer the question. Here are the differing viewpoints. First, that this lady is a metaphor. She represents the universal church, or that is the church worldwide. Or she's a metaphor for a local unnamed church. One of them. Well, the problem with this view is found in the personal comments in this letter that you really have to sort of ignore to fit this metaphor. I mean, he talks to her as if she's a real woman, that she has a real house, that she has real children. In fact, the warning is that she's going to give hospitality to false teachers, and he doesn't want her to do that. That's a real warning to a real woman. So to stretch this just stretches it beyond to me what the text would allow. And let me give you one other thought about this view that that I really don't like. What I really don't like is the fact that in the New Testament, while the church is referred to in feminine terminology, we're told that Jesus died for her. Ephesians 5.25, a very special, sweet nuance in him being the bridegroom of we, the church, the bride. And we're told that, that we are the bride of Christ in Revelation 21. But the church is never, ever hinted at or called in the scriptures the mother of believers. Never. You are not children of the church. And for this to be the metaphor, that makes you children of the church. The church has absolutely no ability to give anybody life. We don't give spiritual life or a spiritual birth. Only God can do this. And this, this, this view grew in strength as the church became corrupted that viewed the church as the mother of those who were truly converted. This is far different than what the scriptures would tell us. In fact, John in his gospel makes it very clear that when you accept Jesus Christ, when you receive him, you are given the right to become children of, say it with me, God. There's a, another view that this lady is a real woman, but her name is Mary, as in Mary, the mother of the Lord. Again, early church leaders got that rather ingeniously by Translating chosen, the elder to the chosen lady, chosen can be understood as eminent, and it can be. And since there was no woman in their view more eminent than Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is obviously a letter to Mary. Well, it's highly unlikely if John is in his 90s, which he is, for Mary, older than John, quite a bit older, that she would still be alive. She has since long since disappeared from, from Scripture Furthermore, it panders to the view that she then is the mother of all believers. So the metaphor to me takes us down a wrong path and stretches the truth of Scripture. There's another view, a fourth view, that it is a real woman, but her name is Martha. 
Again, one of the early women that traveled along with the Lord. Again, early church fathers knew that the word translated lady to a chosen lady in the Aramaic language can can serve as a a common name, Korea, uh, which is translated from Aramaic, at least into English, Martha. John knew that. And the major problem I have with that view is he's not writing in Aramaic. He's not trying to subtly hint. He's writing in Greek. Uh, a fifth view is that she was a real woman named Electa. Again, going back to the word chosen, eclectes, that word could form a proper uh, name, uh, Electa. The problem with this view is that in the Greek text, the word chosen is an adjective, not a noun. It is nouns, proper nouns, which give us names. John, again, understood a little bit of grammar. The view I thought was actually funny. If this is true, if you look down at verse 13, John ends this letter by saying, the children of your chosen sister greet you. He uses the same word for her, eclectes, chosen, which means Electa's sister's name, if she was a real woman, would have to be Electa as well. Now, that would mean that their mother either really liked the name Electa, or forgot that she named the older daughter Electa and then named the younger daughter Electa. You know, I I thought that was funny. Finally, the sixth view is that she was an anonymous, faithful woman. In other words, the word chosen is to be taken as an adjective, which it is in the construction here. It can mean excellent, eminent. It can also mean faithful or choice. This is a compliment. And the word lady could be taken simply as lady, which in our language we would translate as ma'am. In fact, let me give you a literal translation of this opening phrase which answers the questions. You might want to get a pencil and write it down. Here's how it should read. The elder to the chosen lady. There you have it. All those hours to arrive here. But I I did want you to hear some of the evidences to the other views because I know there are others who hold. She is an unnamed yet faithful believer. Now, the word chosen, eclectes, would have encouraged her uh, immensely to know that she had not been forgotten as a widow. That seems to be the implication here. A mother who raised children, by the time he writes this letter, they're grown She's not only not been forgotten, but the implication is she was chosen by God before time began, but what has happened in her life has been chosen for her as well by her sovereign Lord. In fact, the only other time in the New Testament this word chosen is attached to someone's name or another individual, it only happens one other time, It's in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, where Paul writes, Greet Rufus, a choice, eclectes, a choice, eclectos, a choice man in the Lord. Uh, The word eclectos is to be understood as someone with an excellent reputation. I don't know why the translator shifted and called her chosen and him choice, because I think that's A wonderful translation, a choice servant of Christ. So whoever this anonymous woman is in some anonymous unnamed church somewhere in the world, John knew her, she knew John, and he's writing to this choice, 
faithful servant of our Lord. We're not really told why she had that reputation other than the fact that she had a a heart given to hospitality and that's a danger and John wants to warn her not to give hospitality to false teachers. But she's known for her faithful testimony. She's tried to pass on her godly influence to her children. We'll learn later on that some of her children were walking with God and some of them were not. So when we get the recipient right, that John is writing to a literal woman, a, a, a literal mother with literal children, that she's a real woman with a real house where she's going to entertain real guests, that, that she has a real sister and she has real nieces and nephews. It just sort of colors now our ability to make application as we ought to and the right perspective in our lives. This is a brief note written to a godly woman and her children. Notice the rest of this opening phrase. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. John isn't being indiscreet here. He isn't crossing a boundary when he tells her that he loves her. In fact, he doesn't use the word philia, which would mean I have deep affection for you. He uses that covenantal word agape. I have a commitment to you like God has to you as his child. But I want you to notice in the text, he includes the children in this statement of love. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom, that references all the above, whom I love in truth. In our language, we could say it, whom I love in the Lord. Who is the sum and substance of the truth? He's going to drive the truth, the truth, the truth home. It resides, it emanates from, it is surrounded by, it it is sourced in Christ. He's going to make that clear. I love you in him. I, I love you because we both, along with your children, we all belong to him. There's this immediate love, this sense of loyalty and and, and, and desire to support. And, and our love is rooted in the truth of Christ. This would have been incredibly encouraging to this woman because he's telling her, not, not only do I love you, but all who know the truth. See, we're part of a community. He's telling this, more than likely, this widow, you're not alone. You're part of a family. And you meet any of them, they're going to love you just like I do. How encouraging this would have been to her to read. Let me, let me wrap up this first study here with a couple of thoughts that came to mind in addition to some of the other points of application. Let me spell these out. Number one, some things can remain steadfast and never need to change with time. That's why he begins with this nuanced retelling of unchanging truths. You've been chosen by God in his grace. Your life has been planned by the providence of God implied in the sovereign Lord. There is truth, the truth, the truth that never changes for it emanates from Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. You belong to this community of believers and that love doesn't change because it's rooted in Christ. There are things that never change 
with time. Secondly, some things can remain hopeful even when time changes everything. Imagine how her world had changed. What she thought would be her lot, what what she thought would be her marriage, what she thought her children would become. How much has changed over time? Imagine her culture around her. You talk about quicksand. In fact, beloved, if you think we're living in a wicked generation, start studying the first century of Rome. It'll greatly encourage you. She's living in that cesspool. It wants to bury her. It wants to bury everything about life that matters I mean, raising godly children, come on, that's impossible. Managing a, a household without a husband by her side, that, that'd be exhausting and discouraging. Putting bread on the table, that's going to be a daily challenge. You probably prayed the Lord's Prayer, you know, over and over and over again. Daily bread, Lord, just for today. I mean, making ends meet, thinking about the future with any, any sense of hope, that would be a battle. Maybe you're facing the same one, though in different ways. And here comes this knock on the door, and and a letter's handed to her from none other than the elder statesman of the church, an old, wise, gracious, caring elder, John. I imagine her reading it over and over and over. She shares it. The church reads it. It begins to spread. It is authorized over time as that God-breathed, spirit-stamped truth because this church needs it. This was written to you and to me. She would need these encouraging words which is why God prompted John to be faithful in doing something small. I read of a woman by the name of Mary Cushman this past week. Her testimony pulled out of the Great Depression days of the 1930s where she and her husband and her five children were trying to make it day by day. Her husband had become ill, but even before then, they would live off his paycheck of around $18. She dressed her, her five children in Salvation Army clothing, ill-fitting but warm enough, still barely able to make ends meet. Her husband becomes ill in a prolonged illness, unable to work. She adds to her incredibly busy, discouraging, hectic, difficult days the laundry and the ironing of her neighborhood to earn some nickels and some dimes. The local grocer finally stops loaning them food when their family tab reaches $50. And then her oldest son is caught stealing food from that same grocer. And with that, the last strand of hope just snapped. She writes, I couldn't see any hope any longer, even though a believer. I took my youngest, my little five-year-old daughter into my bedroom with me. I plugged up the windows and cracks with paper 
and rags, and then I turned on the gas heater we had in there, but I didn't light it. I lay down on the bed with my little girl beside me, and I told her we were going to take a little nap, and then things would be better. And I closed my eyes, listening to the gas escape from that little heater. I will never forget the smell of that gas as I began to fall asleep. Suddenly, I thought I heard music. (laughs) I stirred and listened. I had forgotten to turn off the radio in the kitchen. I heard the singing of an old hymn and the lyrics I knew by heart. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. As I listened to that hymn, I realized the tragic mistake I was making. I had tried to fight terrible battles alone on my own. I jumped up, I turned off the gas, I opened the door, raised the windows just in time. Then I began to thank God for all he had given me, all that I had taken for granted, Poorly fed, poorly clothed children, but I had been given children. A husband ill and unable to work, but I had been given a husband. A future without answers and financial resources, but a future where God would keep his promises. I had been standing on my problems with God instead of standing on promises from God. And that's our challenge today. Whatever we face, we don't stand on our problems. We stand on God's promises to us. In the days ahead, Stephen will continue through 2nd and then 3rd John in this brand new series called Postcards from John. I hope you'll be with us for all of it and that God will use this teaching to revolutionize your life. That's the testimony of Randy and Teresa from Louisiana who wrote to say, we want to send our gratitude. Your program has changed our lives. We work night shifts and the broadcast has given us something edifying to listen to as we work. You have helped our study of the Bible individually as well as as a couple. And we thank you for that. Well, we thank you for listening and we're humbled that God is using this ministry to bless you. Each year, Stephen hosts a conference for pastors, deacons, teachers, and Bible study leaders called the Shepherds 360 National Church Leaders Conference. It's held at Colonial Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina on October 20 through 22 this year. As a listener to Wisdom for the Heart, we have two special opportunities. First, there's a discount code for Wisdom listeners so you can save on the registration. Also, Stephen's hosting a special lunch during the conference for our listeners. The lunch will be here at our studio so you can meet Stephen and the staff. Go to shepherds360.org for information. But before you register, 
Call us for the discount code. Our number is 866-48-BIBLE. Please join us tomorrow for more wisdom for the heart.